welcome to the ALN podcast series. If you like what you're hearing, you can find this and other podcasts, videos, papers, and more at assetleadership.net. Today's episode is brought to you by the Andrew James Advisory Group. AJAG provides training in the ISO 55000 standard, and our world-class training qualifies students to take the ALN A55K certification exam, an industry recognition of an individual's knowledge of the standard. Certified individuals add value to any organization's asset management initiatives. Realizing your ISO 55000 vision need not be painful. Visit us at www.andrewjamesadvisory.com to see how we can help. Now, enjoy the podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of ALN Thursday at 4. This week is uh, very interesting. We've got Shelly Culbertson from the Rand Corporation and Shelly Culbertson from our very own Rich Culbertson. And uh, before we get started, I want to uh, thank our uh, patron sponsors, uh, ABS Quality Evaluations and ABS Group, Onuma System, and uh, all of our organizational members without uh, all of our, the support we get, uh, we cannot uh, do programs like this and uh, plan for the upcoming 2021 Asset Leadership event, which will be going from October 12th through November 12th. Look for details coming up on that. And uh, next week, we will have our first ALN Thursday at 4 guest, Jack Kelly, uh, back. And uh, he'll say what it's been like uh, watching ALN Thursday at 4 for a year has been. And he's involved in the uh, um, ISO uh, 55,000 rewrite, so he'll be making comments about that, too. And uh, just a couple procedural issues. I am flying solo today, uh, so if all questions could be put into the chat section, that would be easiest, and uh, uh, I want to uh, try to make this as, uh, as easy as possible. And we might uh, ask... Uh, some people to come on and be a uh, special guest towards the end, but we'll surprise Shelly with that later. So uh, thank you, Shelly, for, for, for joining us. Uh, your father, Rich, had said you had some excellent reports uh, that you had done with Rand. Uh, he said were relevant to asset management, and I looked at them, and indeed they were. Usually we start with a uh, uh, question about how did you get to this point in your asset management journey? Since you're not really focused in asset management, can you just give us a little uh, biographical background on uh, how you got to Rand Corporation and uh, focus in these areas that you're focused in? Sure. Yeah. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me, Mike. I'm, I'm honored and, and delighted to be here. So uh, I'm Shelley Culbertson. I'm a senior researcher at the Rand Corporation and associate director of our disaster uh, research and analysis program. And I have been at Rand for a number of years. I've spent uh, about half of my time at Rand working in the Middle East, um, working on um, international development and working with uh, places that were post-conflict. So Iraq and the, and the um, some of the um, countries surrounding Syria dealing with refugees. Um, and then in recent years, I've been based um, in, in Pittsburgh, where I transitioned some of the international development work into disaster recovery work, as there are a lot of overlaps between 
um, uh, post-conflict recovery and disasters as, as well. So uh, um, per our, our discussion, um, I'm happy to talk about some work that we've been doing in the past couple of years in the Caribbean after hurricanes Irma and Maria, which were in 2017, and the havoc that they wreaked on Puerto Rico and the US Virgin Islands um, in, in particular. Um, I think something that has been interesting about those studies is that while we were not looking at, at standards um, as specifically as part of the study, the studies were about um, um, looking holistically at how these um, societies um, and, and islands in, in totality could recover, um, standards did come up um, in, a, in, a, in a number of, of places and seemed to be a, a key part of that, that recovery. So I'm, I'm happy to uh, talk about some of those issues. Yes, the government upheaval uh, overlapping with uh, natural disasters makes perfect sense. And to tell you the truth, then that overlapping with asset management kind of makes sense also. If you have asset management in place properly, then when disaster strikes, you are more ready to recover, at least in theory from what I've seen. And I would think the same thing goes for uh, government upheaval too. You know, it's better to have a government be upheaved if all the assets are in being managed properly. And hey, maybe there isn't even upheaval if there is proper asset management going on. But let's. This isn't a theological discussion. This is more practical. So, uh, will you tell us a little bit about what uh, you you found in your uh, research on the disaster uh, recovery? Uh, sure. So I have uh, um, worked on and, and, and led parts of two studies. So the first was the, um, the disaster recovery plan for the U.S. Virgin Islands, and then the second was looking at how municipalities in Puerto Rico can recover. And I think um, a, a common um, issue in, in both places was that there were tremendous challenges with, uh, with public development, um, infrastructure degradation, um, not not being not following um, continental U.S. standards, and some economic challenges prior to the disasters. That when disasters struck, um, they were less able to um, recover or to be resilient than if they had had those um, circumstances um, in place. And I, I think you know some of the interesting um, things that were coming out of this were that. Um, a lot of different types of buildings or um, um, public service infrastructure, roads, um, um, electricity, wastewater, um, et cetera, um, hadn't really been up to, to continental US standards prior to the hurricanes. And so um, after the hurricanes, the disaster recovery plans included efforts to try to not only get them back to where they were, but to get them up to um, what, are, what are now continental United States standards. And um, a lot of those standards that, you know, if they had been in place and had been followed, would make such places more resilient to hurricane destruction um, in, the, in, in the first place. So for instance, uh, the upgrades to the, the types of roads that they were using um, would, would make them uh, be able to withstand higher levels of storms and then not have those same types of issues. So it's been interesting seeing how uh, building standards and management standards have evolved over time um, that if if they had been in place prior to the hurricanes, there could have been um, somewhat less of, of 
levels of destruction. Um, I think another area where standards were really um, um, coming in, into, into play were in the, the capabilities of local communities or municipalities to be able to manage processes. I think so, so one of the challenges with a, a disaster is that not only is you know, there tremendous physical destruction, but then the people who are central to uh, managing the recovery from that destruction also have had personal destruction. Their homes are destroyed. Sometimes their offices are destroyed. They work out of their cars, or office buildings are moldy. They may be traumatized. Um, there, are, there are a lot of reasons why that, that process is, is difficult. In addition, um, a lot of those communities that get hit by disasters, um, their day-to-day -day operations are not centered on um, um, managing capital projects. They might manage uh, maintenance and repair and have certain projects in place. But now suddenly, once they've been uh, uh, been at the, at the forefront of disaster, they have to manage massive capital projects. So for example, Puerto Rico had $90 billion worth of destruction. The US Virgin Islands had $11 billion of destruction. So imagine tiny little communities that you know maybe they maintain their roads every once in a while. Now they have to manage huge capital projects. And um, many times the processes for managing those aren't in place. So every individual municipality um, needs to almost reinvent the wheel and coming up with procurement standards, finance, um, contracting, all of these things. And um, some of our recommendations were about how if um, they were able to get some you know, island-wide standards that would really reduce the burden off of these traumatized people who have so much on their plate and have to reinvent the wheel to do all of these things. So I think there's a, a, a really nice overlap between having some of these, uh, these processes um, in place that could reduce a lot of burden on communities recovering from disasters. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, you said they might be traumatized, but, you know, people may be hospitalized or even dead. So your workforce is, is now totally different than it had been. So, um, yeah, the, the, the workforce is totally different because, so it, both in the Virgin Islands and in Puerto Rico, there was fast out migration of people. People looked at the economy, they had a hard time getting jobs, they looked at the destruction, they didn't want to be there. So, Puerto Rico had some 500,000 people. Um, leave some of those came back um, um and virgin islands had somewhat similar proportion maybe 15 percent or so at least according to some other school data um that that left so 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 the workforce is different because people are leaving first of all uh, next um it's hard for them to put energy into recovering their community when they're going home and they're living in with a blue tarp over their roof um, or even after the blue tarp is gone you know, the electricity might not be there or maybe you know their cousins had lost their home and moved in and now you've got multi-family homes so there are a lot of reasons why there's just a tremendous amount of stress that's the second reason why the workforce is different and then in addition the skills that are needed to rebuild and in the numbers um, needed may not be there so the virgin islands for instance um, we did some modeling of workforce requirements and um, they they needed a lot more workers than they had and even if they took all the unemployed people on the on the islands and got them trained up um, they still wouldn't have enough construction workers managers um, you know all the types of skills that you would need um, uh, to be able to manage these large complex processes and so then we have to start thinking about importing them so the, the, the disaster recovery just is reliant on all these very different types of systems that all have to be working together and, um, and, and, and in place, all while you know, the people who are required to do this work may not be able to function at their best because of their own personal circumstances. So um, part of uh, your findings were to uh, 
try to assist. Uh, well, we had talked previously, you said one of the things that the municipalities were doing, and you just noted that they all are reinventing the wheel. So some kind of standardized processes for procurement, municipal procurement could be beneficial. And if it's beneficial for these island communities, it could probably very well be good for our counties, our states to be doing some of the same type of thing. I think so. absolutely apt. So while our studies were focused on the Caribbean because of the tremendous amount of destruction there, and these are American territories, et cetera, um, as part of this work, we also did interviews with a number of state and local government officials um, who had managed disasters, um, you know, whether in Louisiana or New York from Hurricane Sandy or just really around around the country, um, and and often heard the same things um, that you know, from, from their perspective, they get hit by a disaster. Now all of a sudden they're, they can't function at their best and, and they have huge amounts of additional responsibilities that are placed on them. And then I remember, um, we have a quote in one of our reports, but one of the, um, um, one of the uh, uh, state officials said, I wish someone had just handed me this, this war Bible that had all the stuff we needed in one book with sets of templates and contracts and checklists and all these things to do so they didn't have to go and figure it out on their own because the last thing you want to be doing when your house is destroyed and your building's destroyed and you're the one who has to go go uh, manage recovery is to have to figure all this stuff out from scratch when some of those things should just be you know readily maybe replicable um, across disaster prone communities and and I actually think that this is this is this is an idea that's probably generalizable to uh, disaster prone um, or afflicted communities really across the United States, whether that's um, hurricanes, floods, wildfires, they get into the same situation and they think that they're the only ones this has ever happened to and have to reinvent the wheel because they just don't know what to do or, or, or what the, the, the processes or standards are. Um, and so having um, some, some materials along those lines for disasters could probably be uh, you know, a very useful addition. Did you find uh, in your studies that uh, FEMA had any of this in place or was it easier for FEMA to do that type of standard uh, work in the mainland but it was harder on islands or so I would so think FEMA would be on that so, so FEMA does have a number of, of standards and, and, and processes. Um, they're, they're also uh, more focused on their, their own in, internal processes and they've got you know, volumes and volumes of, of, of books and um, you know, guidelines, et, et cetera. So they have that. Um, but really on the, it's, it, I think some of the issues are more on the applicant side or the applicant meaning the, you know, the, the state and, and local entities that have been hit by disasters. Um, they're the ones that are often struggling. Um, at the same time, I think one of the things that we noted was that um, that FEMA's uh, processes can be so complex that if you're a, 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 um, a community hit by a disaster, you know, having to navigate all of that can be can be quite challenging. Um, and so there's an element of complexity um, in those operations that can can um, add to some of the challenges. I think we're uh, establishing a new call. Uh for the Asset Leadership Network is to uh, assist FEMA in establishing, you know, using a standardized process that would help people before and after uh, disasters. FEMA might as well start helping people before disasters occur because we're seeing them increase. And if we can get the message out, you know, lessons learned, you know, like you've done and 
Houston's been flooded so much that, you know, they probably have something close to a playbook that could be used by other flooded communities. But that's just me speculating. So part of the process is, uh, recovery process is insurance claims. And uh, our, uh, we have a question about uh, standardization would probably help streamline insurance claims. Did you, did you uh, look into how people were able to deal with the, you know, insurance claims? That's kind of hard process to be doing when your house is flooded or burnt or whatever. Yeah, and insurance issues are are are, are really interesting in uh, I think in, in the Caribbean in disasters and probably elsewhere, but I can speak you know mainly to the, the situation in the American Caribbean, um, where so um, FEMA is viewing itself as the the funder of last resort. So what's supposed to happen is that um, homes and offices and businesses are insured. Um, and then after insurance claims have been paid out, then federal funding. Um, that, that process can, can work quite well in, in a number of circumstances um, and, and so forth. Um, some insurance companies and, and coastal areas have been pushing back on the idea of insuring places that have these, these, these high risks. Uh, but there are a number of challenges also um, with, with um, relying entirely on insurance or ways that make um, that somewhat um, in, in, in incomplete. So in, in some cases, um, and particularly in some of the lower in, income communities, um, homes were either not insured or underinsured. Um, and so um, people who were facing disasters um, may not have had the full insurance needed to be able to cover that. The same thing would often happen with, with public buildings as well. So even with the public buildings, for instance, in Puerto Rico, uh, we found that uh, often the ownership of the public buildings was not known and, and document buildings with paper documents, perhaps from hundreds of years ago or even tens of years ago, they, they could be destroyed or maybe those records just didn't exist. So even figuring out, you know, was it the, the, um, um, central government of Puerto Rico, was it the municipality, was it who owned a building to be able to then process insurance claims or to get um, federal assistance. Um, so documenting some of the ownership issues um, could often get in the way. Um, and the same thing would happen with individuals with, with home insurance. So often the system works very well, you get insurance payments. In other cases, um, people might have lived on land for generations and not have had deeds and would have had a very difficult time proving ownership in order to be able to get insurance, or maybe they didn't have it. Um, um, or in, in many cases, also in Puerto Rico, communities could settle um, 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 without um, ownership deeds um, in on certain lands, but sometimes those lands were flood prone. And so if a flood hit and there was no proof of ownership, those people still were out of a house, but um, the insurance would not necessarily have been been available. So it ends up being um, somewhat of a, of a complex system that works, when it works, it works well. And then in other cases, there there's some gaps. So again, asset management prior uh, would be beneficial. So the governing uh, body if there is any way that they could assist people in securing and having the documentation, then when disaster occurs, there's some record of ownership and, and be able to avoid some of the common problems that you've uh, noted in uh, your reports. Yeah, actually I, it's a bit of a tangent, but comparing that to say post-conflict um, recovery, um, 
some colleagues and I also did a study on recovery of uh, the city of Mosul in Iraq after the, the battle against ISIS. And this was also coming up as, as an issue. Um, property when, with, with all of the destruction, people moving around, property records could be lost. And then if somebody wanted to either move back into a home or um, qualify for UN or government assistance, they often wouldn't have any documentation that this was their particular home. And so um, the property records um, um, would often be be quite complex and get in the way of recovery. And in, in that case in particular, ISIS um, went into the city and they destroyed the building that had um, all of the property records. And then they would often conf confiscate um, um, homes and so forth, and then either give them to supporters or sell them for revenue. And so this, this issue of how do you deal with property claims after a disaster or a war um, becomes quite complex and there are a lot of similarities and it's it's odd when you can look at you know, the American Caribbean and Iraq and, and look at some similar issues. Yeah, um, and it's it's strange to think, you know, in these very old societies that digitalization of the records would be helpful, but uh, we claim that data is an asset and that sounds like you manage it beforehand by uh, digitizing it and keeping it on the cloud. They could destroy the original, but that would be okay. It, it seems weird to think that asset management is playing a role in uh, post-conflict recovery, but I, I think there's a case to be made for that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very accurate. That you know, being able to have updated data and property records and other types of records are, are really key. And it's interesting you mentioned um, data as well in the context of, of recovery. I, I, so some of our reports have, have have found that there really aren't good standard metrics, um, and then data collection um, to support the metrics for recoveries. Um, and so that's something that's also uh, very, very much needed. So we recommended that for both Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, developing a you know, set of, of targets and goals, metrics to measure those, and then developing systems so that data is systematically collected so that that can be tracked. Um, but I think that's also something that is probably a, a general um, um, issue as well, but, or at least it's not necessarily consistent in, in a lot of disasters, is that what, what is counted as success and what is measured in the data that's collected um, to try to understand where you are along that journey um, can be inconsistent as well. Um, I was talking yesterday with uh, someone who looks to be a, a new member, Mary Adams, who is uh, president of Smarter Companies. And we were talking about the complexity of the issues that we're facing. And it seems almost impossible or untenable. However, it is possible to address these issues. It is possible to learn from the disasters in the conflict areas so that flooded areas in Iowa and along the Mississippi can claim their land rights properly. It's not easy, but these standardization of processes uh, can be helpful in, in solving the problems. Um, I, Cecilia I Mola. Respond to Go that in, in the in the in the sense that so the, the I think often after disaster that people look around at the levels of destruction and it certainly looks impossible. But societies do recover, and I, I think the question is how can it be done more quickly and more efficiently. So um, you know we we looked at a length of time for recovery and um, 
say Hurricane Sandy in New York, New York, you know, tremendous um, capacity for recovery. They were able to do a lot of that work in seven to 10 years and spend out um, um, a lot of the, the, the recovery funds during that, that time. Um, and um, in Louisiana, after Hurricane Katrina, that process instead, when you look at the data of, of construction projects and, and when funding was spent was more like 15 to 20 years. And Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands are a little bit behind that. So these are, these are long processes. Um, so they do show that it's possible um, because they're, they're finite, but, but that's a long time. That's a really long time to, to live in a place that takes you know, many, many, many years to, um, um, to recover. I, I think there are sometimes opportunities though to make it better. I, in the Virgin Islands, one thing that was interesting was that um, many of their school buildings had been destroyed. But the school buildings were often, uh, you know, built in the 1950s or so, and they 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 weren't up to hurricane standards, and they they weren't uh, in line with modern pedagogical standards. The school buildings were not designed to be um, um, in a way that supports more modern methods of you know managing education. So the the school system in the Virgin Islands, instead of rebuilding right away, what they did was they put a pause on it. And they work with the American Association of Architecture to come up with their own set of school standards before starting the rebuilding process. And the school standards were meant to be, you know, hurricane resistant. You know, recognizing that you want the building to last, but also that in a hurricane, uh, people will often use um, schools as community centers where they'll take shelter. So it means they need to be pretty special in terms of being able to resist hurricanes and have, you know, manage energy, etc. Uh, but then at the same time, reorganize the, the the structure and the use of space so that it's it's better better supportive of educational purposes. So I think that sometimes, you know, I, I guess this is also going back to the idea of possible versus impossible. Uh, there can be better things that come out of it, but it's 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 pretty, pretty I, I think, stressful and frustrating to, to be living through that process while you're while you're waiting for it to finish. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Cecilia Mowat, uh, president of Strategy Insight, is asking about uh, a holistic approach to collaboration that occurred in the recovery. Um, did you see things that worked in terms of the relationships? Uh, uh, were they strong before the disaster? And because they were strong before the disaster, they were able to achieve things? Or was it the human thing? Uh, Jim Dieter, our CEO, said, when there's a problem, people come together. They, they forget their differences and just recognize that person needs help and they help people. But when the storm is over, then they go back to their, you know, their separate ways. Um, did you see uh, in your reporting that uh, integrated communities recovered better? Yeah, I think I think I mean that that's one of the things that that does end up being somewhat inspiring about looking at disasters. There's so much um, destruction and um, anguish, but at the same time, your know, humanity comes out. People people take in their friends and relatives into their homes to live for months if if their if their homes had been um, destroyed. So people help each other. Um, I think um, you know more from an institutional perspective, um, there there were a lot of community groups that really stepped up to try to, to, to work together. And you could see variation in this where some of the islands, the Virgin Islands had less of a, um, less of a, of a, a, a community organization presence and others had, had more of that. And the ones that had 
more of a community organization, they were they were better able to you know go out to individual homeowners, you know, um, provide information, provide assistance, kind of grease the wheels and make things um, run a little bit better. So having this, um, uh, I guess, the holistic group of stakeholders helping from you know individuals help themselves, of course, um, but you know the, the the territory government, the Virgin Islands or, or the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, the federal government. Um, multiple federal agencies, but then the community groups um, that would organize and you know, either channel donations or facilitate some of these processes. So, so the the, the community aspect, I, I, I agree with the, the questioner, is, is particularly important. So um, I told you ahead of time that 30 minutes was going to fly by. We're almost there. I'm going to uh, thank our sponsors again uh, very quickly, and then I'm hoping you can uh, uh, stay overtime because I've made Rich Culbertson uh, mm -hmm. able to speak and I wanted him to be able to ask you some questions so that because he knows why he wanted you to uh, be a guest and he might have some things that are more specific than uh, what I've yeah. been asking. <laughs> so thank you again, uh, uh, Shelly um, and uh, ABS. Mike. I've been delighted to be here and have an interesting discussion with you. And uh, organizational members. And then uh, next week, Jack Kelly. So um, I'll wait. I forgot to start sharing the screen. So we're going to do this all over again. One second. Okay. So there's the patron sponsors. Thanks to them. Here's our organizational members. And uh, next week, I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing from Jack Kelly a year after the first uh, ALN Thursday at four program. So, um, Rich, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me okay? We can hear you too. How are you doing in Reno? So, uh, Shelly, I forgot to let everyone know you're in, you're in Pittsburgh and Rich is at the uh, National Property Management Association. Uh, National Education Seminar in Reno. And Rich, you say it's smoky there? Yeah, it was a little smoky uh, over the last couple of days. And so you can smell a uh, disaster, you might say. But uh, uh, I think, though, that uh, when Shelly was growing up, I've always made sure that she had all these asset management experiences, you know, such as moving from place to place. Uh, <laughs> also, when she's about 14, I sent Shelly and her brother out to California to paint a house. That is hands-on asset management. Hands-on asset management. And that, that has grown into her some of her current activities because she's a she's a landlady too. Okay. You learned, so she, you learned well. She's learned well. Uh, one, so, one experience we also had is that when Shelly was writing a book, you know, one of the things she wanted to do is go to Egypt. Well, I wanted to go to Egypt too, but we had different objectives. She was looking, you know, how how societies went in, as, as far as um, uh, after, uh, uh, I guess, the, the, the term is how, how they were adjusting, you know, and uh, I was looking at asset management. So we, we shared times of this is an asset management shot or this is a uh, the, uh, another shot of, of, of how societies were evolving in, in the Mideast. Mm -hmm. Um so, Shelly, what did you learn from your father 
about asset management? Anything kind of seep in? Does he talk about ISO 55,000 at the dinner table? He does indeed talk about ISO 55,000 at the dinner table. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so, so while I don't, I don't work on um, asset management, I, I, I do appreciate it. And uh, um, I, I, I do think uh, one, one important concept has been the idea that not all assets are tangible. They could be intangible. And you know, making sure that there are processes in place, and I think that's a, an interesting idea when thinking about disasters as well. That you know, a big asset is having steps and processes in place so that you know, people in distress don't have to reinvent the wheels. So um, I think that's a, a, a nice concept. Excellent. So um, uh, Rich uh, Mary Adams is on uh, the call, and uh, I look forward to introducing you to her. She has a career in knowledge management, which is uh, uh, intangible asset management. And uh, we'll talk about that more later. So um, I've always had a, a large amount of interest in, in knowledge management because I always thought that was also, in fact, uh, a good intangible asset. So uh, Shelly, you, you found that that was an important aspect of uh, successful uh, recoveries that you re reported on? Um, yeah, I think um, well, we, 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 um, we recommended having um, standards and processes um, in, in place. And I think that, you know, that that's a, it's a similar concept. That is now. Shelly, you've been involved in uh, intangible asset management as far as education, correct? Um, I don't know what you mean, Dad. Shelly, for a long time, would, would sneak over to Iraq because she had had uh, some contracts there about the educational uh, system in, uh, what city was that, Shelly? Yeah, so did, um, uh, I did about five years of work going uh, back and forth in the, the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Um, we, we worked, uh, Rand had contracts with the Kurdistan regional government and they, um, they wanted to develop a plan to get all kids in school up through ninth grade um, and that involves a number of, of, of aspects. Um, one of them was figuring out how to get enough school buildings. So we did modeling of the number of school buildings that would be needed along with numbers of teachers um, um, and um, um, looked, at, looked at those issues. And similarly, um, you know, a, lot of, a lot of issues with, with buildings and um, you know, school infrastructure and so forth. Uh, one thing she can tell her mother was she was in the green zone. That, that's another important aspect of uh, knowledge management is uh, don't get your mother worried about things that she does not need to worry about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, she, and, and she didn't tell her, her mother about the bodyguard she had to go when she went over to Iraq. Well, I'm glad you had that because you're an important asset to be managed also. No, that's not right. We're trying to get away from using the word asset related to human beings. Um, we're going to work on that. Um, so your book that you wrote, uh, I think, you know, you said uh, it was a tangent to talk about uh, um, conflict recovery. I don't think so. I think it's directly tied. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the book? Yeah, so I, I, um, I wrote a, a book in, uh, so I write a lot of brand reports. This is, a, I wrote a commercial book um, in, in, in 2016 and it was looking at how the, uh, what, what, how, the, how the Arab Spring changed the Middle East. 
Uh, and it's not an academic book, so I hope uh, anybody who's listening might like to uh, uh, read it and enjoy it. Um, but it's a narrative of a journey through six countries that had experienced the Arab Spring. And then um, using the journey as a means to try to reflect on the political changes and the history and how the place just feels and so forth. So um, I had I had a, I had a lot of fun um, writing writing the book. It included discussion of Tunisia, uh, which was the first country to have the government overthrow. As to Tunisia, Turkey, um, Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, and Qatar. Um, and um, yeah, it was a wonderful. Wonderful and fun and interesting um, um, book to write. Although um, I think its conclusions were, were were somewhat tempered in the sense that um, um, the Middle East is is the, these challenges will take a long time and probably several decades to resolve. Yeah, we're seeing the reversal of some of the much of the gains that occurred. Currently, it's it's not as pleasant there as it as the promise was. Yeah, at the after the Arab Spring, the 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 hopeful protests led to four civil wars or government overthrows, and um, um, Tunisia, which had been perhaps the most promising success story, is also seeing some instability right now with um, um, with additional pressures from COVID on the economy and and so forth. So I think um, many countries in the Middle East are struggling. Uh, I think well, we've been fortunate enough in the United States and, and parts of Western Europe to have had um, subsidies to help you know, people who lost their jobs um, or who were struggling financially get through COVID and right. a safety net. Um, the Middle East, had, many countries hadn't been able to do that as well and had um, economies shrink. And so um, those, those people are, are really uh, struggling in, in, in a lot of ways. That's hard to see. So your uh, trip with your father to Egypt was part of the research for that book? Yeah, very fun. Yeah, I wanted a, a, a travel companion. So, so my, my, my dad came to Egypt and we, 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 traveled, we traveled through Egypt and um, I, I, did, I did interviews and my dad took pictures and then um, uh, <laughs> he, he created a slide presentation called Asset Management in Egypt, which was, uh, which was his trip photos. <laughs> and it was very fun. Yes, I, I actually worked with him on getting that uh, presentation into shape, and uh, it was uh, a really? little bit of arm wrestling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we got it to a point where I think it is uh, uh, valuable and, and meaningful, um, but uh, Rich kind of lost interest after I, I had to beat it into shape, and I think I've maybe beat him a little <laughs> too hard. That was fine. It, 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 it's a good, um, good experience and, and a good memory and something that's documented. Actually, it's really what formed our, uh, the foundation of our relationship, Rich. Yeah, it sure was. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, so then you traveled to the uh, five other countries also? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so t Tunisia, Turkey, Jordan, Qatar, and uh, Iraq, yes. Um, yeah, but I, I, I had been doing um, work um, in many of those countries um, prior, prior to that um, and then or, or had lived there as a student or spent a lot of time traveling. So that so um, that was it, that was after a lot of years spent in the Middle East. Yeah, OK. Well, um, thank you for bringing all of your experience to our audience um, and uh, 
really appreciated this uh, conversation. And thank you, Rich, for uh, recommending that we talk to Shelly. And uh, we'll, we'll keep her abreast of uh, ISO 55000 and asset management developments in case it ever is of assistance to her uh, in any way. Well, I think she knows more about asset management than she lets on. Yeah. Well, thank you for the kind invitation and the really interesting discussion. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll have you back uh, maybe as part of a panel. Um, I could see us uh, eventually, you know, talking more about uh, disaster recovery and how to prepare for it. That could be a real good, uh, uh, meaningful uh, panel. So we'll keep you in mind. And thanks, Rich, for jumping in. And thank you to the audience for uh, uh, attending and sticking around. I appreciate uh, your interest. And we'll see you all next week. Thank you all. Bye for now. Mike. Thank you, Dad. Yeah, thank you. everyone. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed our podcast, and we would like to thank the Andrew James Advisory Group for their sponsorship. For more information about AJAG and their services, please visit www.andrewjamesadvisory.com or email info at andrewjamesadvisory.com. You can find this and other podcasts, videos, papers, and more at assetleadership.net.